Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with two Anderses. Anders Ronquist, head of the Multilateral Coordination Unit at the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, known as CEDA, and Anders Berlin, director of UNCDF's Least Developed Countries Investment Platform. Anders and Anders, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Great to be here. Great to be here. Please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what was the path that led you to your current work in development? Anders R., let's start with you, please. I grew up just outside Stockholm in a place called Solna. And I studied there and then I moved every, every time I changed from middle school to high school to secondary, I moved around. So I tried different schools. And then I studied at University of Linköping and University of Göteborg, but also did a few courses outside master's courses in the UK and in South Africa. After studying, I think the path that led me to work in development was basically teachers who had a great influence on me, language teachers that encouraged me to study languages, teachers that were interested in the world, in global affairs, really had a big influence, both at high school and university particularly. And one specific teacher at our university, Linköping, who, who promoted the CEDA scholarship minor field study, which allowed me to go to a field study at a young age when I was at university. And that, of course, opened up my eyes to the developing world and to countries and people living in poverty. And Andersar, how long have you been at CEDA? I started in 1996, so it's been quite a while, but I've been in and out of the head office and as much time in our embassies, in our partner countries, as I've been in at CEDA headquarters. Fantastic. Anders B., over to you. So I grew up in the countryside, not so far from Stockholm, the capital. I always wanted to be a journalist, so... I even started twice at the School of Journalism in Stockholm, but then dropped out. And I've always been thinking what different career would I have had if I would have continued as a journalist. But I moved on to economics and received a Master of Economics in Stockholm. And then a few years later, I also took a Master in Economic Policy at the Columbia University of New York. So that was pretty much a focus already at that time on development economics. And I did a minor field study, which was a minor study in country. And I went to Zambia and studied the copper industry and the foreign exchange movements due to the copper prices. This was late eighties. So with those two sort of educations in Stockholm and Colombia, I was already set to do international affairs. And I was accepted to a young professional program at CEDA, same institution as Anders here in the beginning of the nineties. And, and then onwards. Thank you very much. I think it's always great for our listeners to hear all the different paths that lead people to development because it's never the same path twice. May I say something, Eric? Esther, to chip in yes. on precisely that. When Anders mentioned B working in UCDF mentioned that he did the minor field study with the CEDA scholarship. It was the same as I did, but in a different place and with, on a different topic. But it shows how important that kind of a break opportunity is when you're young, to really set you on the path for what you want to work with and where you end up uh, eventually. So I think that was probably more important than many of us re reflect on when we actually go for, for that kind of scholarship. 
Thank you, Anders R., for that insight. One of the things we try to do on this podcast is give some guidance to young people who are looking at careers in international development or finance. So going overseas and doing a field study in a developing country would definitely be one of our recommendations. So Anders R., you've been at CEDA for quite a long time, since 1996, as you mentioned. What was it like when you joined and how has it changed in the time that you've been there? Well, first of all, I would say that it's been a great workplace. That's probably the, the main reason why I'm still here. It's just that it has so many opportunities in terms of how we can develop as a person and as a professional. And in that sense, CEDA is the same CEDA today as it is when I joined. I still see, when I talk to my younger colleagues in their late 20s, early 30s, they still say that and they feel that. So I'm very glad to see that that spirit of being a generous employer and an organization that really goes for knowledge development and learning, being a learning organization, that is very much the same. In terms of our work, it has changed, I would say, quite dramatically. And when I joined in the mid-90s, it was very much focused on project support and financing and funding of projects. We still do that, but it's developed over time to much more comprehensive financing solutions, program initiatives, and program-based support into whole of budget support, country support. And then over the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, you've seen a lot more of the private sector coming in and a focus on partnerships. And with that, of course, comes also uh, focus on innovative financing and innovations in general. So that has changed a lot, I would say. So I would say from project to partnerships is a good description in a few words. Yeah. Thank you so much. Anders B., you studied as an exchange student in the United States in high school. What was that like and how did it change your view of the world? So I actually think that was really what triggered my interest for international affairs and development in general. So I joined an organization in the beginning of the eighties and they sent out uh, like thousands of exchange students to the U.S. And I landed at the college, uh, CW Post. I, I still think it exists actually on Long Island with thousands of other students from about 80 different countries and uh, nations around the world. It really gave me the flavor of the diversity of, of the world. And I came from a very small place outside of Stockholm, quite rural. So here, you know, I was close to Manhattan with the number of people from very exotic places in my mind. So that really opened up some of my senses for what's out there. I went to school just south of Buffalo. It was called Eden. It was a very welcoming community and I really still feel a lot of gratitude to this very generous and open-minded community. The, the biggest club in my school was FFA. So it was the Future Farmers of America. So, so it wasn't really a very cosmopolitan place or environment, but nevertheless, they were very open to foreigners and they have had a number of foreigners over the years and they've all been uh, welcomed very generously by them. So how this really shaped me? Well, before traveling, I probably didn't have much of a view of many of these exotic places. And now I realized that the Swedish teenagers and U.S. teenagers were not very different, or, or even teenagers from Brazil or, or Mexico or Thailand or whatnot. These were in Ghana. So these were the friends I made, and some of them I'm in touch with still. So I, I guess maybe there was a, a seed of solidarity that was born during this year when I met these, coming from this small place in, in Sweden. Thank you, Anders. What a great story. I know that when I worked at the State Department, one of the most successful programs at the State Department is called the International Visitors Program, where they bring slightly older people, but young professionals to the United States for a study tour. 
And it is always tremendously influential for people who have not been to the United States to meet Americans and actually engage with regular citizens. So another piece of advice we would give to our young listeners is to explore these opportunities for exchanges where you can actually go to another country and learn for yourself what people are like there. Anders R, turning back to CETA, is notably creative and generous in its aid funding. For example, supporting secondments to multilateral agencies with CETA staff, and also using its aid funding to support innovations like the idea of making loans and guarantees to developing country businesses. Where does this openness come from, and what can other countries with development agencies learn from it? That's a great question, and it's always a risk of that you're a little bit too introspective and narcissistic when you start looking at why we're so great in Sweden and why we're so open and generous and so So thank you for the question, but I'll try to be honest, you know, and I think most of all, we, always, we often talk about this in Sweden, and that is we are a small export-oriented and export-depending country, very much depending on the outside world for our subsistence and for, for our economic development. And Swedes have over decades, I, I would even say centuries, traveled a lot. And we were explorers and we've had explorers, so not only the, the famous Vikings or infamous Vikings, but even after that. And it, it's part of our DNA, I would say. And if, if you look at the political contacts, I would say that most political parties in Sweden, they do have a great for decades international network and they thrive on their international contacts. So it's very much also supported by our politicians and it's embedded in Swedish society. And I remember growing up in the 60s and 70s when I was a small kid and the solidarity for South Africa and for the fight against apartheid, that was very much something that the whole community of Sweden supported or more or less the whole community supported and almost all political parties, but one supported that struggle and the whole Sweden came together to express that support for a country that was so far away that most Swedes had never been to. And it felt very close. Yes, I think it's in our DNA, the internationalism, you can say. And of course, we've always been great supporters of multilateralism. I think Dag Hammarskjöld meant a lot to show Swedes what multilateralism can be and what the UN has to be. And, and he set a standard that I think many Swedes of that generation took note of and that sort of also given that further on to other generations. Well, that's fascinating to learn about the history. We know that CEDA is a government agency. And so how were you able to take this openness and incorporate it into the policies of your government agency, especially around aid funding, which we know in almost every country is quite strictly regulated? I think CEDA has grown, it was created in the 60s and the predecessor to CEDA was created in the 50s. But I think so, my generation grew up with Sweden being a big donor country and that also there was a, bit, a lot of public support from Swedish people, from our taxpayers, basically fund us, that international development is important, international solidarity is important and that our country and our world becomes better by making the other world, the bigger world out there better. So I think that connection between the outside world and our own country, and that is also what is so important to keep these days when we see, you know, rise of nationalism and protectionism and extremism. So I think it's something that is not specific for our overseas development assistance or our international development cooperation. It is something that is very much part of Sweden and our development cooperation is an expression of that. Thank you, Andersar. Yet another thing to admire about Sweden and Swedish society. So Anders B., you also came from CEDA. You led the Loans and Guarantees Unit at CEDA before joining UNCDF. What lessons did you learn there that you've brought to support LDC small and medium enterprises here at UNCDF? Thank you, Esther. That's a great question. There was a number of lessons that I brought 
uh, to UNCDF. And then maybe the most important is that in the investment world, there is really need for more concessional finance. Uh, and I see that almost daily for the poorest country, there's a lack of risk capital, equity or debt. There are obviously grants and CDAR are great in providing grants and even to the private sector, but grants does not really build credit history or provide know-how like a equity investor could. So there's a gap between what grant providers, and if you look at more commercial microfinance institution can provide, and between what domestic banks, impact investors, and DFIs provide. So here in between, there is a, a lack of capital. And this gap is not really filled by DFIs. If we talk to the Scandinavians like Norfund and FinFund, or even a sweat fund. So filling this gap, at CEDA with the providing guarantees. And Anders, my colleague Anders has been a, a great promoter of guarantees when he's been working on this side in the organization. And these guarantees to domestic banks have been there to increase the risk appetite for SME. So that was a, a very working instrument to try to fill that gap. And furthermore, UCDF has developed a toolkit that is really tailor-made for these kind of investments. So understanding this gap and trying to build a toolkit that can respond to that has been one of the lessons that I've tried to bring to UCDF. Another lesson has been to, and, and this becomes a bit boring maybe, but you need to have a strong back office. So when I was at Seed, I was very focused on building pipeline and issuing guarantees and really neglected the back office routines. And when the auditors came in, they said, clean up this mess. So when I started at UNCDF, I thought, now, nah, you know, I better start with building the systems and, and making sure that everything is in orderly fashion here. Maybe a couple of more. So another lesson is also that it's sometimes when you work at Seed or UCF, it's sometimes very difficult to be taken as a cold-hearted investor because you're representing a public entity with a soft side and a soft image. And that can really be detrimental to what you want to achieve. The companies may think that they don't need to pay back the loans because it's a UN agency or because it's Seed. And I remember there was a guarantee at Seed once and there was a health service provider was benefiting from a Seed guarantee. And he told the bank that he wouldn't pay back the loan because he knew that CEDA was there behind the bank and they have lots of money so they can't pay up. So we always have to work with our clients to understand that we expect that repayments would come as with any credit or any domestic banks. And they have to remember we're still a, a good partner for them often because our interest rates are lower and tenor or longer, right? And maybe a, a last lesson from that, the clients we find, they are situated in a very narrow space because they cannot be too risky and too small for us either, even though we, we would like, but if we would carry too much risk, we would end up with a portfolio with more defaults than performing loans. And that would absorb all our capacities. So we can't take crazy risks, even though we see a number of companies that are super risky and need capital, but not even for us. On the other hand, we don't want to finance clients who are sufficiently commercial. They should get credit from the private sector. So we need to ensure that we are in between here and, and, and being additional. And, and that's something I worked on since I worked at CEDA to find this very specific niche to support these kind of companies that can go commercial, but not yet. Thank you, Anders. B, I think it's fascinating to really stress that UNCDF has both a development and a financial mandate and backers like CEDA are supporting us because we fill that narrow space between commercial viability and the development impact that we want to see. 
as you say, we're not doing deals that anyone could do because if anyone could do it, they should. But we also can't take bets on companies that will never pay back because the whole theory behind our intervention with grant money from Swedish taxpayers and taxpayers of other countries is that we are helping these countries on the path to commercial viability when they can become independent and no longer need grant support. And if they fail to pay back our loan, it doesn't help them and it wastes our money. So for any potential borrowers from UNCDF out there, please note that we will be expecting you to pay back your loan, the same as any other borrower. Anders B. and Anders R., you are both from Sweden, a famously gender-equal and progressive society, as we've discussed. As Swedish citizens, what was the biggest adjustment you had to make to living overseas, and what aspects of other societies was the hardest to adjust to? Anders R., you first, please. Thank you, Esther. Yeah, it's a question I've been thinking about a lot over the years when I worked at SEED and had had the privilege to travel to many countries around the world. And, you know, what first maybe shocked me when I got out of Europe and first came to uh, Central America and, and discovered Nicaragua, which was the first country I visited and where I also did this minor field study at the university, was that this was a country that was very, very poor and where people's basic needs were not met. I grew up in a Sweden where it was very egalitarian, very equal in that sense. We were people's basic needs were all met and much more than that, of course. That poverty, dire poverty and extensive poverty that you see in many of the poorest countries in the world, that shook me uh, coming there first. And, and I still find that hard. And that's also what, what drives me, motivates me to do something that to help people get out of poverty. Also knowing where Sweden comes from, you know, uh, 150 years back where, where we were a poor country and one of the poorest countries in Europe. So we've also made that journey. Then, of course, another thing that is also uh, difficult to meet when you come from a you know, country that's been living in more than 250 years in peace, basically, and we haven't been at war, is to, to go to countries at war, experiencing civil war like I did in Nicaragua in the 80s when I was there first time and when the country was still at war and also in former Yugoslavia when I came there in the mid-90s uh, working for the Red Cross and to see people from the same country fighting each other, hating each other and that animosity was very hard to experience and difficult to relate to, I must say. So that was something I had to take in slowly and talk to a lot of people to understand it. Authoritarian societies, hierarchic organizations also is difficult coming from a you know, Swedish society where we are very non-hierarchical and not the very authoritarian uh, you know, style in general in our society, in organizations, in government. So that's another aspect that is quite different to what I grew up in, what I'm used to. Thank you. Anders B? Sure. So I also being a Swede, I have similar experiences like Anders, right? So one of the things that we learn in Sweden is that it, it's quite non-hierarchical. So even at, at workplaces. And therefore, when you enter into a more international scene, it may become challenging. And I, I found a couple of times where it's more hierarchical. And in that sense, I may have a difficulty to fit in, right? Expecting a lot of being empowered and, and delegated to. And at the same time, if, if you work as a manager, as I do, you might have your staff that they're expecting a, a specific role from you that might be more hierarchical than you brought up to be. So in that sense, it has been important to find a way of infusing a Swedish model slowly but surely when I work with staff. You talked about gender and I think gender is definitely be something that when you work in other contexts that with the Swedish background that you're surprised and may not really understand 
why there are these inequalities and et, et cetera. But also when you work in, in development contexts and poor countries, poverty is, is really overwhelming. So it, it strikes across both genders. So sometimes it's even difficult to see what's uh, gender specific and what is just poverty. So that's another sort of observation I've made. And, and lastly, I think coming from a system, and I'm saying that with the background of being a U.S. for a time, with the system when the state is there for you and you can feel that in Sweden you have some sort of protection from the state. And that you realize when you work in other contexts and especially in, in developing countries that the state doesn't have the resources and sometimes not even the will to protect its citizens. And that is often very difficult to understand. We're very privileged where we work out in the field. So we keep having that protection in, in some way from our employers. So the health and the education networks, social networks are not really there. And that can be quite frustrating to see in these countries. Thank you very much. So what was your favorite posting or assignment and why? Anders B., we'll start with you this time. Well, I think I must say UNCDF. Uh, to have the privilege to build operations is really satisfying. UNCDF is a very small agency, which also provides a pleasant platform for quick decisions. New York is also the finance capital of the world, or, or one of them. So there's a lot of collaboration possibilities in the neighborhood. And of course, New York is an amazing city to live in. I don't know if I like my work more or the city, to be honest, but th this posting is great. I actually also enjoyed working in Kosovo a, a few years back. That's on the Balkan. And I was head of the development corporation for SIDA there. Kosovo also has a very friendly people. And I arrived in Kosovo after working a number of years in Tanzania, where I really experienced some aid fatigue with a number of counterparts. And I really lost a bit of my energy for development corporation over those years. In Kosovo, when I moved there, I regained it. And I met a lot of people that wanted change. And that was a great posting, even though it was a short posting. Thank you. Anders R? That's probably the most difficult questions. I, I would say they're all favorite, Esther. And I've had the privilege to work in three different continents and five different countries. So they were all favorites because, and for different reasons, and for their, you know, respective specificity. And it also depends on where you are in life. For example, when we lived with two newborns in Nicaragua, which was a small country, you know, maybe not with a big social offer or it's not New York, let's say that, Managua, but it was perfect for us then. And we had a great time there and the people were so warm and friendly and we discovered Central America and Latin America through the Nicaraguans. And then living in countries like South Africa and Kenya was the thrill of not only my, but also my family's life and to explore these two super rich countries with culturally, demographically, geographically, politically, historically, they're really interesting. So I cannot pick one posting and say that was my favorite. I think it's like Anders also said, you find different things in different times of your life and in different contexts. And I think that's what I would like to recommend also to younger colleagues. Be broad and look out for different experiences and life opportunities because it will enrich you and it will make you a, a better professional and certainly enrich your life. Thank you. So now we'll turn to which project or initiative you've worked on that challenged you the most and why? Anders R? Yes, Esther, thank you. Uh, that was perhaps the even more difficult question than the previous one on the postings. I think 
But when you're working against the stream or against the wave of force in society and you're trying to promote something through your, our contributions, our funding, our partnerships, that is really not what the government would like to see. For example, working in democratic governance and anti-corruption. So it's difficult. It's really difficult. And it can be sometimes a little bit disencouraging to work. But at the same time, you get some wins and you find some champions within government and you work with civil society and you have champions in the private sector who comes together with you. And so then it becomes less cumbersome. So even in, when it's been very difficult, you can always find that there is light in the tunnel. I think that is what I'd like to say on that question. And even things that are easy, it should be easy, can be very difficult as sometimes. Secondments, secondments we have right now about from CEDA, we have 50 ongoing multilateral secondments and that's 50 lives, 50 different experiences and 50 persons with families, many of them who experience difficulties and you have to support them and you have to stick up for them and stick out for them. And you'd have to be a good employer or a good sending out organization like CEDA is in these cases. So that they can be very hard to work with, but they're also extremely enriching from what you get back when they come back or don't come back. <laughs> Thank you, Anders R. Anders B, turning to you. Sure. So maybe on the challenge, I will pick something that is close to my heart right now. So we're investing in SDG positive businesses and we're issuing loans or, or guarantees to banks so they can extend credit to these businesses. And we're doing an assessment of these businesses. So one thing that we're struggling with, and, and we're not the only one, I'm, I'm sure, is to find a way of combining a sort of financial risk and return with impact risk and return. And I had a, a small product already when I started that usually have like four or five years ago, we were trying to find a model for that and really haven't really got anything that is good enough yet. So how can we build assessment model that put both of these important criteria in the same diagram or in the same model. Can we monetize the impact so we can compare apples with apples? Risk is really about probability. So probabilities, we know they're not always right, but it's easy to talk about probabilities and to put numbers to them. But impact return is, of course, more difficult to find a common unit for. And this leads to another sort of challenge that I've been thinking about, and this is a, a super big question, right? So how can you transform the role of capital over time? So we're all working in, in this space where we are providing capital, which has a bit of a different color than 98% of the capital out there, but we want the capital that we are providing and that kind of characteristics to become the norm rather than the exception, which is today. And if you look back, capital has been there to make profit for many years and, and profit maximizing. When I uh, went to university school, I learned that you have these equations and it's there to maximize profit. You have labor and capital and you maximize profit, right? And then you go to business school and you learn the same thing, you maximize. So, and, and over time, labor has been exploited to help maximize these profits from capital. Now this is changing, right? And, uh, and if you want to have a sustainable business, many companies sure that they have staff for the labor and these labor are finding a balance in work and receive benefits, which help them to continue to be productive and satisfy the work. And if you look at the new tech companies, the expectations of young staff is, is different from the staff labor in, in previous generations. And companies have also realized the importance of not doing bad things, right? So, so we talk about ESG, so they do screens for environment, social and governance issues. So to make sure that there's no pollution, they're allowing unions. They have gender policy, et cetera. 
So we come a long way in, in terms of the use of capital. But the next step is really to make sure that capital is valued higher if it's contributing to doing social or environmental or governance good, right? Like the impact I was talking to in the beginning. And if that's happening, there may be a trade-off with the financial return and the profit maximizing. And in that sense, we have very little of such capital today, as I said, that is trying to do this good. To have that change in the view and role of capital will probably need another sort of generation. But I think we are in the direction of that. And I want to think that USCDF, even though we're small, we want to contribute to that as well, as CEDA is doing. Because if we want to, you know, save the planet, we really need to have the capital working to actually do that. Thanks, Anders B., for raising the level of this discussion to a philosophical question about reframing capitalism. I think that we certainly see from our position at UNCDF that there is a desire for both stronger impact metrics so that impact can be considered with financial performance, certainly an impact investment assessment, and a desire from younger people and new generations to have capitalism behave differently. And I think what is positive is that we see that the Swedish model of governance is one way that governments and society is organized that works very well for people. And we can see that it works, objectively speaking, better than other models of governance that exist out there. So maybe with CEDA and UNCDF and all of these theories, we can make a Swedish model of capitalism or use of official development assistance to spur more impact investing and a legitimate alternative, a viable alternative to other uses of capital and other models of capitalism. And uh, I think we're making some good progress. So that's encouraging. Esther, let me say from CEDA's point of view and my own personal point of view also that I couldn't agree more than what you, what you just said and also to what Anders is elaborating on. I see we are now having intense discussions with Swedish investors through the network of Swedish investors for sustainable development. And they are telling us that their owners and shareholders, pension, future pensionists, are actually saying to them that they want to see their money invested sustainably and they want to see their money do good. So I would say it's more than just philosophical. I think it's really, we're coming to a, a stage now in development cooperation and in development financing, where we are now very close to getting where we want into what the World Bank always talks about from billions to trillions and to actually make the cyber action agenda on development financing come true. And that we will actually institutional investors that will provide the capital needed to make the agenda fulfilled or as far as we can go until 2030. So I'm full of hope. And this week we've been in discussions with institutional investors, both at Swedish level, but also at the global level. And I think it's very promising what we hear in terms of where they are turning to now. Fantastic, Anders R. We will hope that your optimism is rewarded and we see those funds start flowing in the direction of where the political statements have been leading for a while. So as we look to wrap up, what advice would each of you give to our listeners who are interested in development finance as a career? Anders B., we'll start with you. Sure. So I think if you want to work in development finance, maybe take two routes. One is to go traditionally and in university, you'll do a finance degree and then maybe learn about businesses, right? So traditional MBA, and maybe you can also try to get some impact courses when you do that. And you can really start in the traditional finance industry and learn the profession. I think that's often very useful and maybe keep your interest for impact at the side. 
What is also very useful, I think, is to try to see if you can combine your business degree and your business experience with the competence in the sector. So maybe you look into also learn a bit about energy, agriculture, health, education, fintech, everything in the future will be related to sustainability. And you need to start thinking how you combine financial sustainability and these sectors and the output of these sectors. So I, I think that if you want to work in on another level, which is more in the, say, if you want to discuss economic systems and, and trade regimes and fiscal and monetary policies, you should study economics. I did study economics in the beginning. And, and then, of course, you'll get into the bigger questions in the world about inequality uh, in terms of training, et cetera, which is also a, a need in the future, I, I guess. So these two routes, I would recommend somebody to do. And then, of course, look out to gain some practical experience along the way. At UCF, we have internships, right? So not many, but a few get the opportunity to sit in and, and be part of when we're looking at businesses and supporting them. Myself, I did the minor field studies. I went to Zambia to do. That's also great to try to do that, to get scholarship, to actually get out to the field and, and try out something. Thank you. Anders R. This is perhaps, if not the most difficult, but I think perhaps one of the most important questions in the entire program, because it's a lot of responsibility in also helping young people doing what they want to do and also showing that there are different paths to success. I always say that try to get a very broad perspective on things if you're interested in development and whether it's financing or whether it's other areas of development, try to get different types of experience from different environments and contexts try to get to know people in other countries and in different contexts. And, and so you, you learn more about what matters to people and what their greatest needs are, because only then can you understand what we are here to do and our mission. I see today a, a lot of young interns and trainees here at CIDA, and they come in with a very rich background of experiences. And you're super impressed when you look at their CVs and you talk to them. And, but I think those who, who are really successful are those who have tried many different things, both during school, academic, through their academic history, but also when they started work, they've opened different professional doors before finally landing in, into where they are now. So I think that is very important. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today on the podcast. I think we've had a very enlightening discussion about the Swedish exceptionalism, what makes Sweden so special in so many ways, and what makes it such a generous and creative donor, not least to UNCDF, where Sweden is our largest core donor, for which we're very grateful. And thank you so much also for your very specific and pragmatic advice for our listeners about both how you got into your careers and some of the challenges and uh, opportunities you faced but what steps they can take if they're interested in a similar career. So thank you so much again, Anders B and Anders R for being with us today. Thank you, a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you again to our listeners for joining us on the Capital Musings podcast. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org.